Stand at Ease, Episode 7, Sunday, July 25th, 2010. The Warriors Brunch. Because we're nothing more than some satellites that happen to be orbiting your planet, is that right? Well, Peter and I served together at uh, Camp Lejeune. And that's your generation, Jim, with the P- especially with the PTSD. Were these people um, hold to begin with? Well, it's pretty interesting because I've got three Marines who all served with me at one time. Isn't that interesting, James? Welcome, everybody. We've got, let's just do a quick roundabout here and give a quick intro. I've got Jim, who's in in Pennsylvania, pulled off to the side of the road, and he's got somebody shagging him down a vanilla ice cream cone somewhere. <laughs> in the woods in Minnesota someplace is DBR and Christian. David is uh, on his camping trip. Peter Hartman, our guest for today, is in New York City. Is that right? No, I'm in New Paltz, New York, about an hour and a half outside New York City. And Garland Green in Santa Rosa, California. And as Jim said, and I'm not going to go ahead and and, uh, blow his thunder, Jim, introduce all of us as they apply to you, because we're nothing more than some satellites that happen to be orbiting your planet. Is that right? (laughs) Somewhere along there, yes. Well, Peter and I served together at uh, Camp Lejeune. We were in division schools. You ever see that movie, Men Who Stare at Goats? That's kind of what we did. Uh, <laughs> we, trained the, we trained the division. It was uh, quite, quite an interesting experience. We had a British Royal Marine. We had a... Uh, where was Beckham from again, Peter? He was a Dutch Royal Marine who also won, right. he won the uh, bronze medal in judo in the 76 Montreal Olympics. Right. Huh. We, had, we had quite an athletic group there. I don't know how they picked us, but uh, it was quite an athletic group. And we, we were charged with overseeing the training for the entire division. One of our primary functions was a squad leaders course where we restructured that and actually made it more or less guerrilla warfare, right, Peter? That is correct, Jim. And with your expertise, I think we accomplished our mission. Now you were now, you, you were, were Jim's commanding officer, isn't that right, Peter? Uh yes. I was about a twenty two year old, twenty three year old first lieutenant and um Jim walked in uh and I I believe as a corporal initially and then within months be, was a staff sergeant and um jim became uh really the key nco uh for devising how the school would be run and 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 the mission to be accomplished and and the education and uh, that marines are supposed to learn jim was critical in doing that now i have well, a question about that uh, did did he take orders very well? Uh, you know, let's take a little story out of school here, there, Peter. I need some inside data on this. This is your opportunity. Remember, remember, Marines. It, it it you know, integrity is something that you do when others aren't watching, Peter. Uh, Jim took orders very very well. <laughs> so you're afraid of him too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh. At any rate, awesome. Awesome. And of course, the people who are, you know, avid listeners to this to this radio show know that Jim was our drill instructor. He left you, Peter, and then he picked us up. 
That is correct. 30 years ago, almost to a couple of months ago, uh, Jim and I parted. Uh, we had a beer and had not been in touch for almost 30 years until uh, you gave me Jim's telephone number and Jim and I reconnected. And it was like um, it was like I hadn't seen Jim for a week. You know, that was an interesting uh, how that ended up getting posted was I was having a an absolutely crappy day at work. And I was dealing with uh, probably one of the most horrible human beings that I had an opportunity to work with in a while and was asking me to do some things that I think ran counterintuitive to who I was. And I and I remembered Jim's citation when I was in boot camp, tracked it down and posted it on my website. And I think that's how you, you came across it when I posted it on my website, I believe. Isn't that right? That is correct. Yep. And uh, there was just, um, it, it was like a day had gone by or a weekend, and yet it was 30 years. Yep, that is exciting. So anyways, uh, Jim stopped by after his, one of his sons saw it, and uh, he and Jim and I had been in contact, and I fired you at the piece, and here you guys are off and running, and now you guys work together, right? Um. Yes, we 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 are partners in 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 a new endeavor, and uh, and Jim is heading up that uh, that group. That um, I'm I'm more of a shareholder member of the company. Jim is actually acting as the key operations general manager of the company, running it. And and that is how, as we were starting to have our conversation, how we got to the topic of this particular show was I we had gathered and there's a great website here that's called veteranstoday.com which talks about veterans and they always have the top 10 stories that are taking place in the news right for today for that particular day and I had sent that out to Jim and to David to kind of have some conversation about the top news stories that are that are hitting with veterans and we were uh, hunting down our guests and Jim said Peter is our guy because you have, through experience, a lot of experience with dealing with cancer, and a lot of veterans are dealing with cancer, and that was how we brought you on board as our guest today, right? Absolutely, Garland. Um, no, I've been uh, not only helped getting the company Jim Works uh, is leading eGuardian Systems, I started a company with a partner up in Boston uh, that's focused on looking at genomic instability in cancer. And all that means is that we have a certain set number of chromosomes and um, pieces of those chromosomes, and everybody has two copies. And what researchers from throughout the world, in academia and in, in pharmaceutical biotech companies, are looking at that in unstable genome, uh, you're able to depict uh, the potential aggressiveness of certain types of cancers. And one of the reasons that's important is the House is expected to bring a bill with an Agent Orange-related funding to the floor just next week. And as we know, the impact of the veterans and Agent Orange had during that period of time uh, could have an impact. So the military uh, construct is, is constructing the VA, and I'm reading here from this piece, it says, quote, the military construction VA legislation includes increased funding for the Department of Veterans Affairs in part to help pay for medical claims from thousands of Vietnam, Vietnam um, War veterans exposed to the defoliant Agent Orange. And what, what Well, you know, you know I'm a cancer survivor. I don't know if we've ever talked about that or not, but... Uh... 
We've never talked about it on the show, Jim. Yeah. Yeah, I was diagnosed with cancer a couple years ago. I had stage three cancer. Everybody was throwing dirt in my face, expecting to bury me. (laughs) And I went through some extensive treatment, which now I've got the cancer in check. But because I was exposed to Agent Orange, it was a, a presumed disease, prostate cancer. And a lot of veterans out there don't realize it. I never knew it. But if you come down with prostate cancer and you're a Vietnam veteran, you're eligible for benefits. And you, you had mentioned, Jim, too, that um, you didn't necessarily know about that early on. And it could oh, have. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. I it could have uh, helped me out a great deal, but I was not aware of it at all. But after, you know, hooking back up with Peter and all the conversations we've had, I'm not sure that I would have taken all the treatments. But at any event, I'm glad that I did because it gave my family peace of mind. But, no, I had uh, stage 3 cancer. And like I said, you know, they were... They were counting me out, you know. They were giving me limited time to be alive. So that's why this, what Peter's doing right now, is really important to me, having uh, been able to live through this cancer. But that doesn't mean that I won't come down with other types of cancer, because the more you read about Agent Orange, the, the more types of cancers that they say you get. Peter, tell them what you told me about uh, why we supply so much money into Vietnam. Go do that, Jim, in a roundabout way. Um, first of all, a majority of all cancers are are caused by environmental exposure, um, meaning there's a chemical a person's come in contact, drinking water. Um, and I'm not a scientist; I'm a marketing person. Um, but but, but you don't spend the night in a Holiday Express, did you? <laughs> You play one on TV, I, Peter. I did. I did spend that night at the Holiday Inn Express, probably a couple of them. But can't, most cancers start from environmental exposure to uh, to a known carcinogen or unknown. Um, Jim and I were were once were talking a few weeks ago when I I said to him Roundup. Um, you know, chemicals people use on lawns, things of that sort, um, could cause cancer. Uh, benzene's a, a well-known ingredient uh, in a lot of things, gasoline, whatever, and and they do cause they do cause cancer depending on that person's you know chemical molecular makeup and and the time of exposure. Uh, what got me interested uh, with Jim having being a prostate cancer survivor is uh, the company we started had licensed some technology from a university in Canada and they had done what we look at some extensive studies at this time that they found a, a genetic way or genomic way of looking at chromosomal material to decide whether or not in prostate cancer, which has been their focus, is, is uh, you know, and we do know this through reading all the research articles, scientific articles out there, is not all cancer 
cancer is not the same uh, per individual. And this is why there's a huge push towards what we call personalized medicine. Um, and with prostate cancer, doctors are now looking for the tools to be able to say, do I have an aggressive prostate cancer or do I have a slow moving, non-aggressive, also called indolent prostate cancer? Uh, and this is where Jim and, and mine's conversations have, have, uh, have taken part in, in wanting to be able to um, identify those people that may have aggressive cancer need very aggressive treatment, as Jim had received, versus those that it becomes more of a wait and watch. Like I said, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not a scientist, but, but it comes down to common sense. Um, this, these tools are being put into play, um, have been around for breast cancer. There's, there seems to be a move now for, for doing it for prostate cancer, but it will take a long time. Have you done any work with the Camp Lejeune water study? Say that again, David. We Because um, yeah. uh, uh, all three of us who were at Camp Lejeune, Gar was put too pussy to go there, but yep, the other yep. three of us were at uh, Camp Lejeune, and we've there's been the information on the water survey for the veterans who are the, or Marines who were there from the mid '50s to '87 when they finally put the new water plant in, and I've been watching that with some interest because uh, one of the barracks I was in, we tapped into that water system. I I'm did you, very did you register, Dave? Yeah, I am registered. Explain yeah, that. I explain that. Please explain what you just said there, guys. Registered okay, so, for what reason? What's that all about? Um, the uh, when the water when the water treatment plant was found, uh, I I think it's hell zone or something like that was real high in the water. Um, the Marine Corps sent out a sent out a message. I got mine actually, um, my letter from the IRS because that was the easiest way to track down the veterans. Um, and they said, they said you've been exposed um, to a known carcinogen uh, over an extended period of time. We would like you to register with, with, the, uh, with the survey. Uh, tell us, basically you did a, I think it was like a 30 or 40 question survey. Um, said where you, when you were, where you were at, when you were, where you were stationed on base and those types of, if I'm thinking if this is the right survey, um, but also then they, they contact you with information as it comes out. Uh, one of our, one of the people who was on my, one of my Facebook friends is also doing a lot of stuff. She's right down at Camp Lejeune and she's always updating stuff on the water survey. So. It, David, it comes back uh, to the environmental exposure. Uh, there's big controversy now on this uh, technique called fracking to release uh, yep. natural yep. gas from uh, certain areas of the country that we yep. could be energy yep. uh, dependent if we were able to do that. But there's a great um, show on uh, documentary on HBO. I saw that uh, not too long ago. And the fact that they're putting known carcinogens into the water, using it under high pressure to crack up the shale, but where's that chemical? Where's that material going to go? And, and I would look at what's happened down at Camp Lejeune. 
I remember reading an article, there was some storage tank of chemicals that was leaking into the ground that did contaminate the water supply. I may not have it correct, but um, this happens a lot with uh, people uh, with gas stations that their tanks are leaking into the ground. Gasoline, once it gets into the water supply uh, or any type of, of, of petroleum type product, uh, literally becomes extremely, extremely toxic um, and could have effects such as causing cancer in different types That's of cases. That's great. That's great That's for the people that live along the coast after this big oil leak. Yep. No, we got uh, my father's farm out in North Dakota. We we are right on the edge of the of the basin, and they're talking about doing some of the frack drilling in his in that area. And Dad still owns the mineral rights. He sold the sold the land on top of it years ago, and he's right now trying to decide whether he wants to sell the mineral rights off because he's he knows he's seeing what it's done in other areas around um, that part of North Dakota. And one of the largest livestock herders, uh, probably about 15 miles from where my dad grew up, they can't raise cattle anymore. They have to ship water in from the Missouri River, and that's just cost prohibitive. There's a big debate here in New York. Uh, it, it's just incredible what we don't know about cancer. My time I spent with Peter has been quite an eye-opener for me. Peter, are you are you still with us, there, buddy? I'm here. Yeah, keep. I'm Carlin. Yeah, okay. Really, What's you it? look at two things. Cancer is um, is a genetic disease of the cell. Uh, it doesn't, for the most part, leaving al along areas of hereditary cancer and childhood cancers, um, which which are, are devastating. But if you look at the amount of people that get cancer, once they hit a certain age, whether they've been working at a company in, uh, involving products that use benzene, whether they're working in a, uh, a petroleum plant uh, that distills and makes uh, petroleum products or, or just everyday chemical exposure, uh, it, that exposure coupled with aging and, and that could be uh, the immune system gets weak over time. We're all getting, we're getting older per se. Things are breaking down. But if you look for the most part, cancer starts to hit people uh, after, after they start reading, uh, reaching their fifth, sixth, and seventh decade. Um, they say, for example, that, that prostate cancer, if they did an autopsy on every male that died, they probably had some form of prostate cancer, and, and but not all cancer is equal. There's slow-moving cancers, um, and then there's fast-moving, and, and that's where I see research and, and the pharmaceutical efforts to be able to identify and, and segregate and differentiate those cancers that are aggressive versus those cancers that may be more indolent. Uh, and I've seen, and this is just my opinion, personal opinion, um, for example, a person that has prostate or breast cancer and young seem to die quicker than somebody that might have gotten it in their sixth or seventh decade of life. 
Why that is, uh, it, it, it could be that cell division is slowing down uh, across the board, and that's affecting the growth of certain cancers. But, but there's a huge push now uh, into personalized medicine that, yeah, cancers could be categorized as prostate cancer, but each prostate cancer within certain groups of people may be different and be maybe less or more aggressive. And, and I'd probably best stop there um, and, and, and get some more scientific fact. But that's, that's really the lay of the land on, on how things are moving. What knowledge do you have in what took place or what we know took place in the first Gulf War with the men and women that served there, the Gulf War syndrome? Are, are, do you have any insight as to what that is all about? Well, this was interesting, and I want to be very careful on what I say, but I, I, was, on, <laughs> I was on a business trip, and I had a young former Army soldier on the sitting in the seat next to me, got to know him, and he was, I was on my way to Washington, D.C., as was he, and he was getting uh, admitted to be tested out at, um, at Walter Reed Army Hospital, and um, he was having some, some bouts of blackouts, things of that sort. He did make a comment to me that 20 or to 30% of his unit at the time, and this is Gulf War One. Um, had come down with with what I will say today I, I know as uh, brain cancer or potentially glio, a form of brain cancer called glioblastoma. Oh, that's uh, awesome. it, was, it was quite interesting, and the, the only thing he could recall is that they were going inside the Iraqi tanks um, that were destroyed, and the fact that you know of certain rounds that they use to um, uh, the, the uh, A-10 warthogs use are uranium depleted, but you're also looking at the massive amount of chemicals of, of, of diesel fuel that was being, oil that was being burned with the wells being set on fire and everything else that, such as vaccines that they pumped into people once again, it comes back to um, to environmental exposure. So what we've got here is we've got uh, Vietnam vets being exposed to Agent Orange, and one consequence we've got we've got munitions with depleted uranium. We even back when those shots were being given during the first Gulf War, nobody truly knew what they were doing, and they didn't give you an option. To have that shot or not have that shot you know your u.s government property and now you're in this situation in which you're having to deal with these folks who are if you're in the first gulf war you're at or around between 40 if you were you know a young boot on the ground you're in your 40s to 50s 45 40 uh, late late 30s uh, starting there and then of course my age of folks that were, were in, in the you know in the staff nco ranks Yep. Uh, they would have been in their 45, 46, 8 in that range, so between 35 and 50. So we're starting to see those. I have a good friend of mine who got tremendously sick cancer. Uh, first Gulf War was over there. And it looks as though, and I, and I hope that this is true, that the Veterans Administration is trying to 
uh, address some of those issues. Now, Jim, with the research that you have done, what if, if somebody's listening to this, what advice would you give them as a cancer survivor, former vet, exposed to Agent Orange, and gone through this cycle? What would you tell that young vet? You know, you've got to go. They've got some great, great uh, service advisors out there, through the American Legion, the disabled veterans, through the Purple Heart. All of these people are trained to assist you because if you don't use your rights as a veteran, you lose your rights as a veteran. Amen. Not only for that generation, but for the generations yet to come. When you put that uniform on, you made a promise. And you know what? It's up to your country to make sure that they continuously, because they put you in harm's way, that they continuously look out for your welfare whatever life you have, and the children that you're going to have. Because you know what? You, there can be deformities. There can be things passed on to another generation. I'm very, very much concerned about these kids out who served over in first Iraq, second Iraq with it. I'll tell you another group of people, and Peter, you can chime in on this, and that's the people on it from the World Trade Center. Yeah. Now, Jim, let me interject one second. There's There was a movie out there. I saw it. It was entertaining. It was called Jarhead. <laughs> the most important item out of that movie that I gleaned off of it is when they had them out in the desert, and they were basically signing forms that they, prior to getting the vaccines, that they would hold the companies making those vaccines, whatever those vaccines were, and there were quite a few of them, I believe. One was anthrax, that they were were signing what I would call a release form that they would not hold the company responsible, and they were forced to sign those, and then were given the vaccine. Well, all of us know, as former military, you don't debate whether you take vaccines or shots or anything else. You just line up in a big conga line and they fill you full of whatever it is they're going to give you. In this case, in this movie, and of course I, I was out of the service at that time, um, it was a very interesting and uh, that these people were made to have on record that they were releasing literally all responsibility if there were... Um, potential hazards uh, to the vaccines. And whether that was a movie, it could have been fictional, but that's something uh, that needs to be looked into because I know there were comments made and, and published in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal uh, about some of these companies that were making these vaccines, uh, especially there was big press on, on one of the companies that was making the anthrax vaccine. Well, one of the things... Well, one of the, well, think, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, uh, think about it. You know, who better to, to experiment than on the military? Because, again, you don't question it. You just go ahead and do it. Correct. You know, we, as a researcher, you know, when I work with uh, populations at risk, I have so many more levels of... A paperwork I got to go through just to get my study approved, and we risk we list uh, populations at risk as children, uh, prisoners, 
and people who are mentally deficit, so people with Alzheimer's and such. And the oversight that I go through with that is just amazing to protect the rights of the individual. And every time I think about that and what, you know, because we had, we had stuff done to us when we were in GAR um, in the mid-80s that I know, like, when I got on ship, they gave me some vaccinations that were a little bit uh, on the testing side. And we had a couple guys in my unit got just sicker than hell from them. Keep in mind, David, every pharmaceutical clinical trial for making a drug FDA approved or any trial, uh, any piece of research usually involves patient consent and, and has to be brought through what they call an institutional review board or yep, IRB. Yep, and I run the IRB for my school, so... I'm very familiar with those policies and procedures. And I know that since, uh, well, since 87 or 88, there's been changes in how that release of information to the, to the uh, participant has been, re- has been given. Uh, there ha- from 75 to the mid-80s, they were just starting to really get, get on board with that, that protect the, protect the per- participant um, and make sure you do no harm. And if you are going to do harm, you got to tell them what the potential risk is. Correct. And there, there are some things that were that happened with you know when I was in that I remember seeing that you know look back now, um, we weren't really told what we were what we were getting into. We were given a sheet of paper that was very generic and didn't really give me a, a you know if I had concerns, who do I talk to about it? If I tried to send that off for a consent form now, my the people who work my IRB for me would rip my rip my form to pieces. Couldn't couldn't it's couldn't amazing. agree more. It really is. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It really is. You know how we've taken our troops and exposed them to various things. Just think about all the bombs that were dropped. Let's go back to Vietnam, Peter, and let's talk about that for a minute. About all the uh, information that our government gleans off of those people in Vietnam still. Well, I uh, want to be careful there, but wherever ever you're disposing of chemicals, whether it be um, Agent Orange, whether it be other defoliants they might have used that we're not aware of, or, or the fact that knowing the chemicals in the molecular structure uh, of, of the accelerant or uh, rocket fuel, uh, jet fuel, things of that sort, uh, not to mention the material that's inside a bomb that makes it explode, uh, whether it be C4 or, or whatever. Um, basically, stories I've gleaned off is, is that Vietnam is, is really uh, a, uh, as they say, there's certain area along the Jersey uh, uh on I-95 in New Jersey, on the New Jersey Turnpike is Cancer Alley. Uh, I believe some research that I've done, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but that uh, Vietnam has had its share of chemicals that cause cancer uh, pumped into the ground, pumped into the environment, and and causing uh, probably large amounts of cancer amongst the end birth defects in other genetic related 
disorders caused by, once again, this so-called environmental exposure. You know, we have to keep in mind, too, that um, those chemicals just didn't appear out of the sky and they showed up in in crates in, in, in a war zone. And there are hundreds of thousands of of uh, communities that help produce that stuff as well. I, I think that at least with Agent Orange and what took place with the Agent Orange, and it's just a shame that so many good people had to kind of lay down on that sword, but the fact that Agent Orange and the effects of it came to the forefront is, is, was really the first steps in waking our government. I mean, we had, we had troops standing in front of nuclear weapons that we had lit off in our own atmosphere and standing up with some kind of cheap sunglasses to determine whether or not they get hit by radiation and what that's like for Pete's sake in the military. So I think we're we, at least we've moved into another direction. And I have had uh, some exposure to some of these young troops, and I've asked them, have you gone to the VA and have you checked in with the VA? And some of those folks are still young, and they don't think about it in those terms. They don't want to be a burden. I'm too tough for that. You know, I mean, you know, dude, that mole that you're shaving around right there, I think you should probably go in and take a look at that. And, you know, Jim, when, when you talked about a right, this is something that I hope that the young veterans are listening to on this particular issue. A right isn't negotiated. You don't negotiate rights. And if you go and prepare to sign that contract that you talk about, Jim, and sometimes it has to be paid in full, but if it doesn't, you have a right to ensure that what you did during that period of time doesn't make you sick for the rest of your life. I mean, you've got to think in those terms and go to those veterans administrations and find it, seek help, and think about not not your life when you're in your 20s and 30s, but what are you going to be when you're in your 40s and 50s and you've got a young family who is dependent upon you and your health. And uh, there's there's help for you, but take full advantage of that and and think about it in those terms. It's unfortunate, Garland. People that are were exposed to Agent Orange. I, I think the big case came out many years ago when Admiral Zumwalt, who was the what chief of naval operations, son, uh, was exposed yes. to Agent Orange and developed a form of leukemia. That's really what broke uh, the the Agent Orange story, uh, and then forced those companies to come for a settlement. Um, however. It's, it's this exposure, this so-called environmental exposure to certain chemicals could take decades to finally manifest itself into a disease that we know, whether it's prostate or some other form of cancer. And then I mean, we, also, we, we also get uh, problems with the young veterans not going to the VA with, with someone helping them, like the v, um, the veterans of foreign wars or the American Legion or the disabled American veterans. They just try and go on their own, and they get caught up in that paperwork shuffle because no one's there to help them at the VA. The VA is a government agency. They don't want to spend money. And they'll... You, I, you I, definitely I, need a service officer. You definitely need a service officer from one of those organizations yep. to do the paperwork. But if you try to do it on your own, trust me, you wouldn't be able to. And my my father is also a disabled veteran. He's now at 100%. Um, he helped me right when I got out. As a matter of fact, I was home three days when we were at the, the county service 
office, uh, veterans office, getting my paperwork set up for getting my disability rated. And it was probably the, you know, the best advice my dad gave me after I got out was get that done now because it'll help you out. And I got, um, I got a 10% with my knee and 10% in my back and got to go through a voc rehab. So most of my college was paid for because I couldn't go back to what I had, I had done before I went in the Marines. You know what? It's, it's important. No one ever talks about this, and you don't know about it unless somebody makes you aware of it. So just think about all the thousands and thousands of veterans out there who were in the first Iraq and the second Iraq and, and have been exposed right now to various chemicals and things. I guarantee you no one's talking to them about, hey, when you get out, make sure you know you get a hold of a service officer. Join one of these organizations so that you'll always be kept abreast of the various news that comes out because it doesn't hit the front pages. Unless you belong to a veteran organization, you don't know about all these things. I have a, I have a question to kind of throw out to the group here. What is your take on the, I don't know, for pay service members, mercenaries with such folks as Blackwater? And our responsibility to take care of them. What is your take on that? My, well, my that's, take. That's a that's a private group, and they should be insured and taken care of by that group, Blackwater, not by the government. I, I don't agree with that side. <clears throat> now the government contracted them, correct? To yeah. work in all these jobs. That's where the connection comes in. It's like. Uh, Gar, you were in embassy duty. Yeah. If, if you have embassy personnel on the ground and they sustain something, the government takes care of them. So yeah. it, that's kind of a fine line, you know. Um, my feeling is, is when they, if they're in a combat zone and they, if you know, if they they weren't the initial aggressors, they're just protecting themselves. Then, uh, like we do with any other citizen of the U.S., we go in and protect them. And we give them the the aid needed, and then send them on their way. We are after that. We are under no obligation to them. Peter. Well, remember we had we had a young man on who was with Blackwater a couple shows ago. Now hold on, right, hold on. he was to... not with. Hold on for a second. Just just to be clear, he was not with Blackwater. He didn't say who he was with. He was with a Blackwater esque unit. Right, right. Okay, all right. There we go. Well, you're absolutely right. We do have to be careful what we say. That's why Peter was cautious about what he said about cancer. But he told us at that time that uh, they had their own medical personnel that took care of them. But my question would be, what about long-term care? That's something that we never asked him about. That's an interesting question, long-term care. What happens 10, 15 years from now if he comes down with something where he was exposed to it? That's a good question. Hey, Jim, if he's not covered yeah, by yeah. government benefits, which I don't see how he could because he would not be a so-called employee, uh, he would de be dependent uh, if he was still with that organization or company to be covered by their benefits. He, if he left that organization, um, it would be whatever benefits uh, with whatever organization they're working with with that person being covered. So he may have nothing. 
Yeah, what's he, he's a company he probably he's done. does have nothing. I think that that's a that's a question that I've been kicking around. My initial reaction, and and you know, since you're going to putting it down on tape for the whole world to see and to hear, <laughs> my initial reaction is is that we pay those folks sometimes in excess of five times more than we pay another man or woman who's not a private contractor. And I, my initial thinking is no, you 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 don't have rights to that same kind of governmental long-term sustained care that we get in in um you know in in, through the veterans administration and yet i don't want to discard these kids like they're you know emotional tampons but it really becomes an issue whereas are they veterans do they have the same kind and does this nation have the same kind of responsibility in terms of health care even though they're exposed to exactly the same kinds of environmental uh, impact that a service member is uh, it is an interesting I've batted around in my mind and I was just curious as we were getting ready to start the show I'm, I was going to ask us what what do our initial thoughts are on that well think about this the people that they hire for these different organizations they are former military that's where they got their training in so that is a interesting question because they are a veteran. They wore a uniform at one time. They are entitled to medical benefits. But are they only in, entitled at the time of their service while they were under contract with the country or literally employed with the government as a serviceman? Once they leave that and an event happens post, you know, and let's say they're now a consultant, um, it, it would almost strike me that it, it they would not be covered. Well, well I, I don't believe so. I think once you're a veteran, you're entitled to uh, VA benefits. Now, after having said that, it depends on the degree. You're absolutely right about that, but I know I've had family members that were up in their 60s and 70s, who had served in World War II, who ended up in VA hospitals. That's because so I, they, I, I just I, I just wonder how that does work. That's a good question. I think it depends if you served during the time of war. And don't quote me on this. If you were served during the time of war, and no, and were I, in, in a theater of war, then you are entitled to VA benefits. I disagree with you on that, Peter. I think okay. if you're honorably discharged, I think that's how it is. If you're honorably discharged or receive a discharge, general or higher, then you're eligible for the benefits. But the difference is if you have a service-related disability, you always go to the head of the line and you never have to pay for health care on that. Whereas if you're going in for like a general clinic visit, then you get triaged lower unless you have an emergency like, say, a heart, heart attack or something like that. Gotcha. Um, um, that's the way I remember the, the VA benefits working. Now, I got I'm I, I, to, I really think you're right, Dave. I really think you're right there. Yeah. They've got different priorities. They give you a number, some type of a number. And so I'm, I'm still trying to get my friend Tony uh, online because he's a VA rep for my school, and 
if we can get him on, we could ask him that question, and he might have the answer. Can I can I stir the stump just a quarter turn more? The, yep, go ahead. The, the stump or the shit? The, it, it's, it's related. It's related. <laughs> just last week, about 10 days ago, the Veterans Administration said that they were gonna, they're, they're putting in new rules, right? Which means it's not as difficult any longer for former veterans who were fought in and around a combat zone to seek treatment with the Veterans Administration for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Which means that before this particular time, if you were a veteran and you were seeking help for PTSD, you would then have to somehow or another talk about a particular and prove a particular firefight that you were in or something that you could point to in your SRB, your service record book, that would indicate that you needed help with post-traumatic stress. Well, that ended up saying, what about the dude who happened to be driving uh, a gas truck down, you know, Death Highway. Remember, remember when they first came in there? That was quite stressful. They would hit those trucks early on in the war. Didn't get shot at. Didn't do whatever it is, but was under a tremendous amount of stress. And he has some of that into that war particular piece. So we know that those rules are starting to loosen up. So with that being said, okay, as that kind of a, as our caveat to this next section, what if you were a first tour, second tour Marine? getting in their Vietnam, got out, I mean, not Vietnam, strike that, Gulf War, got out, joined a unit such as Blackwater, they're not Blackwater, they changed their name now, um, to a unit such as Blackwater, and uh, all of a sudden you come out before, and now you want to get PTSD support for that. The reason why I'm even bringing this up is there, it's a really kind of a sticky situation as these folks start to become older late 50s, early 60s folks, and these, like, like you pointed out, Peter, more and more of these disorders will begin to, to show themselves. Will we overload the system as a result of somebody making the big cash on the taxpayer's dollar and then finding yourself in a situation where I want to now be taken care of again on the taxpayer's dollar? It, I think it's an interesting question. Well, now, I find it also interesting. I don't know if you've been getting them in your area or not, but I know like the last six months in uh, around uh, my TV stations, I've been seeing a lot of advertisements for becoming a medical worker with the veterans' hospitals. Yes, I have. And, and they, talk, they talk about one of the benefits being that, you know, once you get accepted into the VA, you can work anywhere in the system, any state, anywhere. And, you know, that's coming from... Coming from a family of nurses, I know how that portability can be tricky because you go from state to state and there's different licensure exams. But you get in with that VA system, then you go anywhere. So, yeah, I think the VA is looking at that and they're, they're starting to build up their medical corps again. You think in preparation for that? I think so. I think, I think they probably saw the uh, writing on the wall. And they realized that, especially when we got things like what happened out in Fort Hood last fall, um, you got, I'm not saying that that was a, a case of PTSD, I think that was just a whack job, but we have um, a high amount of service members committing suicide right now. Yes. We have other mental health issues. I have, I had a veteran in my class last fall that if I rose my voice above a certain level, he, would, he was looking for a place to hit the deck. So I had, I really had to concentrate in that class, not to 
raise my my voice if he was in class that day. And then all of a sudden he 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 was gone for two weeks early in the semester and three weeks at the end of the semester, um, just because he couldn't handle the stress of coming to school with all those people. So you know, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's interesting. We've got two wars going on. We've got all these kids coming back. All these problems are surfacing. These are the same problems that all veterans have faced throughout the decades. It's just that we didn't have a name for it, and we didn't recognize it because we were, you know, from an era where you suck it up and you just keep moving on. But these kids, and I'm grateful that all of these things are starting to be looked at, starting to be named, and we're starting to accept it as a society and as a government and give these kids the help that they deserve. And that's your generation, Jim, with the, especially with the PTSD. It was the Vietnam veterans sitting down talking amongst each other that, that got the VA finally to recognize that there is something going on there. I would argue, too, that it, it didn't hurt that the veterans were able to cycle their way up through into the legions of power. It's your generation that are, are the power brokers right now, Jim. Our generation, our middle management, and Peter, your generation is the one that's starting to help you know, lay some of these this groundwork for that and I'll be curious to see as the younger folks in Vietnam get I mean the Vietnam era gets replaced by that crowd we get this whole Cold War era spy folks coming through and then the first Gulf War second Gulf War oh, we already got we got already got some of the Gulf War vets early Gulf War vets in in places of power yep yep that's right they're higher up in the ages with with, with our ages but Peter if you had to guess what would yep. you say is going to be the reaction from the medical community from what you see and give us as much as you can what are, are, is the is the medical community and that particular segment of the economy gearing up to help address these issues i i think they are uh take for example uh uh i think what they're trying to implement is screening is is that it's cheaper to do screening and and you know this is just my opinion it's cheaper to do screening catch it early catch it early because it will manifest itself if not caught early into that person not being a viable uh contributing citizen to the community to their families, things of that sort, and I and I think they're they're sensing it. There's there's a lot of mental illness and mental health over as a society over the last twenty years is they're now looking at mental health not as oh he's crazy, it's a disease and and it may have a biological um, point of view that it's caused by certain things, certain chemicals. Look at depression. Uh, bipolar thing, you know, there's a host of new pharmaceuticals out on the market, but I look at this, that they have to screen this population because literally what we potentially have down the road are, are, are people that aren't able to contribute to society and, and also may become in a small percentage, really ticking time bombs. And the suicide rate is, is, sky high uh, compared to future decades in the past. Um, 
just family issues, family problems, societal problems, it's got to be screened to making sure that these people, now they might've had something wrong with them before joining the military and being put into a, let's say a stressful situation. And, and um, they have to be screened. And I think this is what they're trying to address that it's, it's becoming epidemic within this population of people now that are servicing their country and, and being in a stressful environment. Do you think, Peter, that the length of this particular war and the total numbers of returns? In Vietnam, unlike Jim, who, who signed up for three tours and others like him, if you survived your tour in Vietnam, you had, you know, you'd punched your card. I had done my time. I survived. I can think about the future. I can move forward. Whereas a service member today would go home and, and try to settle back in and know that for, for a decade of their life, they can be uprooted and sent back over and take another, take another spin at the wheel? That and the fact the amount of National Guard they had been using over the last 10 years or so, um, it's, um, you know, it doesn't need, all it has to create is a stressful situation. And, and people can buckle. It's not that they're buckling. There could be a host of biological and, and environmental factors causing this. Um, it's, there's also a different makeup of society from, from when I was, I was born and raised, um, divorce and, and the family unit was in the 50s and 60s uh, and 70s was was tighter than what it is today with divorce and family being much looser. So there's, there's a, a assortment, a sundry of different factors that could be playing on these people knowing right off the, off the beat that 50% of people come from a divorced household. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of societal environmental uh, so many factors that need to be included were 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 these people um, whole to begin with, and and they are looking at mental illness now as a disease, just like somebody would get cancer, somebody gets bipolar, um, depression, things of that sort. It's a disease. There are chemicals and great pharmaceuticals out there, but they have to be uh, addressed. And, and I think it's now is what every woman does usually once a year. She gets a pap smear to find out if she has abnormal cells and, and could she be developing cervical cancer. They, it seems like, and I could be wrong, that they're doing this with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Yeah. They have to identify, and, and there's been a lot of emphasis the last 10 years on mental health. And that it's being covered by insurance, but we're we're putting people out there that can't function if if we don't screen them. And you know, I think that that's there's two things that I find very interesting in that analysis, and I think you're I think you're dead on, spot on. Um, one of the reactions is let's go ahead and change society, right? Let's go back to the greater days when all we did is you know kicked up our shoes and had the you know 
Mountain Dew in our hand, then things are great. We know that wasn't the case, and we have to accept the fact that this appears to be where the society is, and we should address that because when you take and look at where the world is, the way our military is, how we've adjusted, and in the preparation for a new kind of warfare. Okay, we know that post-traumatic stress is easy enough to say, I can look at somebody like Jim who's been in the bush and in the jungle, and I could say, that really sucks. I can see how that guy is stressed out, right? But can I say the th same thing about some dude sitting in a darkened room with a headset on with a drone as he's looking down there whacking folks? Like it's a like it's a, a you know a, a computer game, some folks would look at it and say that what, what's stressful about that? But knowing that you're there picking off lives, even though you yourself are not at risk, that's stressful. I, identifying what kinds of stresses and what kind of impacts that this new 21st century war is is putting us under, and more importantly, once we have identified that, and thank goodness we have the culture that allows us to actually identify it not sweep it under the rug and move along it seems as though that there's great folks and and new minds that are understanding that well we have to deal with it we can always get it better and we can criticize when it falls down but at least as a whole you know throughout the east german and the american judge we've got a good group of folks that are doing that what well, are we well, let me take it let, let me take it one step further i think the last show we did i read that poem that was dedicated to uh nurses yes all right, now, they have the same stress. They didn't really get shot at, per se, some of them perhaps, but the majority didn't. But they saw the effects of war, and they dealt with the war on a day-to-day -day basis with all the wounds that they had to treat and all the trauma they had to deal with. That transferred over to them the reality of war. So that boy sitting in that room playing that video game with these drones and actually picking off people like you just pointed out, mentally, in order for him to get into the game itself, he's in war. So he feels these emotions. That's the same thing with a spouse or a child when their father comes back from overseas. He brings this burden home and transfers it on to them. Amen. And they go through that same kind of stress and trauma because their father or their mother is putting them through it. Because who's the easiest one to hurt is the people that you love. Because they'll tolerate that a little bit longer than a stranger would. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Isn't that the advice you give your kids, Jim? Post-traumatic huh? stress disorder is a catch-all phrase for for mental health issues that are affecting not only our servicemen, but are affecting society in general. And sure. exactly. it, it just so happens that people that are put into a theater of war, it, it they might've had it down the, develop it down the road, but it, it just brings it to the forefront. And no matter what, if the person's military or not, those people have to be given help. First, they have to be identified and given help uh, because it, it, there's only one road, and, it, and it's not a good road if we don't address it. You know what I wish? You know what I, I, wish I wish somehow or another 
and I know that it, we're running out of time, so I, I, I'm going to kind of wrap it up because I think this is a fabulous conversation. But I, I, we'll continue it, and hopefully you'll come back, Peter. Hopefully you'll be willing to join us again. I, I, you bring a richness that um, that I truly appreciate, and I, I know Jim, Jim and, and David do as well. But Amen. Who is it that sits down there and acts as that pseudo counselor? for the wives, for the husbands who's sitting in there. I mean, let's face it. A lot of these young kids are coming back. They're, they're dealing with these problems, doing everything they can, throwing everything they've got, every tool that they know in themselves. And when that doesn't work, they dull it with a little bit of alcohol, smoke a little bit of weed, and God forbid, go down the wrong road even deeper and darker. Okay? Who is it that's acting as those family counselors? It's other family. It's other members on the outside of that veteran I, if, if, I, if I could wish one thing would be some mechanism where those people could get something. I don't care what that would be, a podcast to start with or maybe some <laughs> online training or a TV show like Deadliest Catch except for here's how you counsel a vet and each other and take care of yourselves. But some way to let everybody know that we are a nation at war not the military at war, and you don't ship your boys off and your women off and bring them back and expect them to be the same when they left. It's not like taking out the garbage. It's not like the police officers keeping you safe. These are real human beings from all walks of life, and it, it just seems as though it, it, it's, it's – I would love to find some way that that, that second-tier support group, like you said, Jim, that are the family that would have the right kind of tools to support this group, but – I've seen articles, Garland, they're trying to address it. I don't think it's been put in place uh, where it's effective. But I, I think the Army has been the first organization, at least reading it in the New York Times, and the fact that West Point is 35 miles down the road from me, um, they're, they're addressing it, um, whether they're addressing it correctly. But we've all read the articles of, of incidents that are happening on military bases with soldiers coming back, uh, what's happening to their families. Um, there has to be a mechanism. I don't think it's there uh, at this point in time. But I, I hope we start that dialogue. Fellas, we've reached an hour, hour and two minutes of what I think is a fabulous show. It goes by quick, doesn't it, Peter? Yeah. Yes, it does. I always get surprised at how fast it goes, too. Hey, hey, Jim, did you ever get your ice cream? Oh, yeah, I ate it while we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Jim, just Honest for... to God, Aton, Aton brought it out to the car, and I'm one of the biggest ice cream clones that I've ever seen in my life. And I, I wanted to eat it quick before it dripped all over me, so that's why I didn't say too much. I was busy eating my ice cream. So <laughs> hey, that's what we got to do in the future then, right? Yeah, that's right. We all got to sit around and fill our hole with ice cream. Peter, I'd like to extend the invitation for you to come Absolutely, back. Absolutely, Garland. Awesome. Great. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Well, gentlemen, hey, let's, yes. hey, let's give our shouts out. Let's give no, our shouts yeah, out. Give us a shout out. Take us for, All right. around the world, David. On the world's wide web, you can find us at standardease.org. On Facebook, you can follow us at standardease.org as well. Come and join us. Come and play. We really appreciate it. Um, I also, we, I don't know if you guys received that uh, spam. Uh, yeah. It wasn't <laughs> was spam. It was for real. I'm cleaning that up to the guy that, oh. th there's a guy that wants to contact all of us individually, not just to this empty box. 
So I'm working on that. Hopefully I'll take care of this weekend to give our listeners the ability to, to contact the guests individually if they like, and we can choose or not choose to talk back to you if you're nice or not. <laughs> <laughs> so follow us and uh, join with, and I can't wait to talk to you guys later. Let's not forget, you can always find us on iTunes. So another episode is in the can, fellas. Thanks a lot, and we'll catch you 